Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. We're going through the book of First Peter. We're just kind of taking this uh, one chunk at a time in this series called Walking in Hope, a study of First Peter. Uh, this past week, uh, you might know if you've been watching the news, <clears throat> that the Presbyterian Church USA, the PCUSA, in their General Assembly meeting in Detroit made a decision to approve uh, the conducting of same-sex marriages in their churches. It was about a couple years ago that they approved the ordination of homosexuals to the clergy there this, this past week. Uh, the decision was made to approve the conducting of such weddings. Now, these weddings uh, may only be conducted in states where this is legal, and this is subject to the approval of the presbyteries in the denomination. So now for the next year, it'll, it'll go down to the presbyteries for approval. But when this kind of thing happens, I, I always you know, get a little sensitive and, and, and feel the, the need to, to clarify because so often the headlines will say, you know, Presbyterians do this or do that. Um, you need to know that, that not all Presbyterians are the same. <laughs> uh, if you're visiting here or this is your first time, um, I think it's important to, to point out that there is a difference between the PCUSA that's the denomination that made this decision this past week, and other Presbyterian denominations. We here are not a PCUSA church. We are a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America, which is an entirely different denomination than the PCUSA. We share the name, but that's uh, about all we have in common. so uh, our denomination actually had its own general assembly this past week as well, but um, they dealt with a, a number of, of different issues. So, um, you know, as I was thinking about <clears throat> this decision from the PCUSA and just in some of my own reading, it, it seems like one of the reasons why churches or denominations make decisions like this, where they make pretty significant and radical changes in their policy is because of a desire to keep up with a changing world. Now, I know the decision is more complex than that, and there's a lot that goes into it, but, but I know that that's, that's one of the concerns. There's a desire in the church to make sure that it is able to keep up with what's going on in the world so that we can communicate to the world and reach the world. The assumption is to be able to reach the world, to some degree, we need to be like the world. That we as the church need to make sure that we're just not left behind. Uh, that we don't become this kind of just old-fashioned body that the world forgets about. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic with, with that desire and with that motive. Um, it, it's interesting, though, I mean, with regard to the PCA or the PCUSA, with regard to the PCUSA in particular, that since 1992, <clears throat> and during that time when a lot of pretty significant changes have been made, they've lost 37% of their membership. 37%. So it's unquestionably a dwindling denomination. But I, I'm really not here, friends, to, 
to, to criticize the PCUSA or to beat up on the PCUSA. I, there were a lot of people who voted against this ruling this last week, and I know there are a lot of very solid and very good churches in the PCUSA. I, I'm not here to criticize them. I told you that so that I could set up a question that I want us to think about. And the question is this. How do we, as Christians and as a church, how do we make an impact on the world? How do we reach the world? Is it necessary for us as a church to change what we believe and to change the way we do things, or to what extent is that necessary in order for us to have a voice in the world? What do we need to do to impact the world? I mean, how do we do that? Do we just you know, make sure that we have the hippest music here every Sunday morning? Is that, is that the priority? Is it making sure that we get the most savvy politicians elected to make sure that we get our person in the White House one day? Is that how we're going to really impact the world for the kingdom of God? Is it by building big, beautiful sanctuaries? Is that how we can make sure that we're going to impact the world? If we just have the right facilities? If we have enough money? Think what Peter would say. Peter would say this. Remember what Peter is doing here. Peter is writing into a culture, as I've been reminding you as we've been going through this series, he's been writing into a culture where Christians are living in a world that's very hostile to what they believe. He's writing to Christians who are feeling out of step. He's writing to Christians who are wrestling with, how do I relate to a changing world? That's what Peter's audience was thinking about. We're not the first Christians to have to deal with that question. Peter's writing to these Christians and what does he tell them? Here's what I think Peter would say. Here's how you have an impact on the world. Be holy. You want to have an impact on the culture and on the world? Then be a people and be a church that is radically committed to holy living. That, that's what Peter is saying. I mean, you just look at it right here in verse 16. You shall be holy, he says, for I am holy. That's Peter's command. And that's the title of this sermon. You shall be holy. Now, um, we just finished a series on the attributes of God. <clears throat> and one of the attributes we, cons uh, we covered was God's holiness. And when we did that, I used this text so maybe when Larry read it, you thought, I think we already did this. Uh, but we're going through 1 Peter, so we're going to cover this as well. But I'm not going to go into a lot of time defining and explaining holiness, because I did that in that sermon a couple of months ago. You can go online. You can listen to past sermons. Uh, God is holy, I think was the name of that sermon from 1 Peter 1. Um, and I'm not going to be covering the first few verses in much detail here, because we've, we've already been through that. So we'll be focusing mostly on the second half uh, of this text, of this passage. <laughs> but for right now, let me make it clear, just so you know, that the way to define holiness, probably the best way to define it, is simply with the word separate. To be holy is to be separate. It's, it's to be distinct. That, that's the word that captures this most of all. God is holy in that He is separate. He is different than us. He, he is 
away from us in a sense. He's transcendent. He's unique. He's distinct. He's different. And so when Peter says here, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy, what that command is calling us to do is to be like God. God is holy. I am holy. Now you should be holy because you should be like God. So if the word is calling us to be holy and to be like God, it stands to reason then that we also are to be a people who are different, who are distinct, who in a sense are separate. Now, I want to be careful. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should all just run for the hills and you know, build cabins in the woods and stockpile weapons. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. Nor am I talking about you know, what the Amish do, where the Amish just completely separate themselves from the culture and live in an entirely different way. That's not what Peter has in mind. A little later in chapter 2, he talks about your lives among the Gentiles. Peter is assuming that Christians will be living among Gentiles, among unbelievers in the world. But what Peter is saying here is that if we're going to be holy, there's going to be some measure of separateness from the world even while we live in the world. That's kind of a hard, hard balance to strike. <clears throat> but what's kind of counterintuitive here is that when the church gets serious about that and when Christians get serious about that, the world starts to pay attention, actually. <laughs> Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, great British preacher, one of my favorite theologians. He says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. And it seems like the church spends a whole lot of time thinking, how can we make sure that the world will never think we're much different than them? Let's make sure we're cool in the eyes of the world. Let's make sure that we don't believe or say anything that would offend the world because we want so badly for the world to love us. But here we have this direction to be holy. And to be holy means to be separate. And when we're separate and when we're different, what Lloyd-Jones is saying here, and I think Peter would agree, the world's attracted. So <clears throat> we're going to consider just two points here this morning. Why be holy? Well, it's because, first of all, you were bought with a price and you were bought for a purpose. So those two things. It's the foundation for this direction to us to be holy. So first of all, you were bought with a price. So we see how this passage um, affirms holiness. Verse 16, it's a quote from Leviticus. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now why is it that Peter is writing this? Why is he asserting that we need to be holy? I mean, is it because Peter thinks, you know, if you can just be holy and you can live a holy life and do holy things and be a holy person and say holy things, if you can do enough holiness in your life, God's going to look at you and say, wow, you're really holy. i got to save you. I mean, I, I owe it to you to forgive you for your sins because of how holy you are. Is that what Peter is saying here? No, no, it's not. There's a command to be holy, but this is not a command to be holy based on a desire to merit salvation and forgiveness. Here's how the passage goes on. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, there is this judgment day coming when we'll all give an accountable account of our deeds to the father. Since that's true, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
knowing. You see that at the verse, start of verse 18? Knowing something. Well, what is it that Peter assumes that his readers know? What is it that you and I as Christians are to know? It's this, that you were ransomed. See that word? Ransomed. Very important theological word. Your translation might say redeemed. You were redeemed. Now this is a term that comes from the marketplace. It's kind of like an economic term. Um, You know, bond, credit, equity, those kinds of terms. Those are economic terms. This word for ransom, this word for redeem, is the same kind of term. What it means most simply is this, to buy back from captivity. That's what it is to ransom somebody, to buy back from captivity. Now, we see this in other places in the Scriptures. Here's Mark 10. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we have Revelation chapter 5. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed or redeemed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. See, there are a lot of words that are used to describe our salvation. Sometimes we talk about justification. We're not guilty before God's law. Sometimes we talk about reconciliation. We've been brought back into relationship with our Father. Sometimes we talk about propitiation, big theological word, which just means the wrath of God is turned away. Well, now we're talking about redemption. It's another theological word, but it's not synonymous with all those other words. These are all different words that give us a different angle, a new perspective on this great and wonderful salvation that Jesus has achieved for us. And this idea of ransom has to do with buying back something. So here's the context in which this comes out of. The word there for ransom um, was used in the culture of the day um, to describe the way a slave would be ransomed. And here's what would happen. There would be a slave, and the slave would desire to be free. And so somebody would put up money to ransom that slave. But here's the way it would work. The money would be deposited in a treasury in the local temple. See, at this day and age, there were all these temples set up to worship different gods, and these temples had a treasury. And people could put the money into this treasury. Treasury, That money would then be forwarded to the slave owner, and the slave owner then would agree to release the slave. But the reason that the money was given to the temple treasury is so that it could be understood that it was actually the god of that temple or the goddess of that temple who was buying that slave. And what that meant is that when the slave was liberated or freed from his or her owner, he was now or she was now placed under new ownership, so to speak, responsible now to the deity, the god, who purchased him or her from slavery. That's the, the term, the word for redemption, for ransom that is used here. That's the way that word was used in this culture to describe a ransom. And so here's what Peter is saying to Christians and saying to you and me, saying to his readers, you, Christian, you were once enslaved to somebody else. 
You were once enslaved to the devil, but now you've been ransomed, you've been redeemed, you've been brought out of captivity, you've been bought with a price, and now you have a new master, a new Lord. It's not like you're just taken out of captivity and then just allowed to just, you know, kind of go freely into some kind of a vacuum. No, ownership was transferred from the former slave owner to a new God. Well, it's the same thing for you, Christian. You are now owned by God the Father through the work of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been redeemed. You've been bought back. Now, one thing that's kind of important, I think, to, to note is that, that there's a sense in which we all kind of belong to God, right, in a sense, because God has created all things and all people. It's not that everybody is saved, but God owns all things. What the Bible says is that God created us, we rebelled against Him, we sinned against Him, and so we were separated from Him, so in a sense we were lost, and what God did is He bought back people for Himself. So there's a sense in which we kind of belong to God as Christians in two ways, by creation and redemption. So the, the story is, is told, I've told this before, it's just a good way to, to, to get a picture of how this works. Uh, it's like a, a parable of a, a little boy who builds a boat. And he puts a lot of work into assembling all the details of this, this not an actual boat, but a model boat. And somehow he loses the boat. And he's crushed by this. And years go by. And the boy's walking down the street in a town somewhere, and he passes by a shop, and he looks in the window, and he sees his boat. And so he goes into the shop, and he goes to the shop owner, and he says, that's my boat. I want that. I'm the proper owner of that. And the shop owner says, well, if you want it, you've got to pay for it. So the boy goes home. He works. He earns money. He gets his money together. He comes back. He gives the money to the shopkeeper, and he gets his boat back. And then he's holding the boat, and he looks at it, and he says, Little boat, you are twice mine. I made you, and I bought you. I created you, and I redeemed you. That's what God has done for Christians. He created you. You rebelled against him, but he bought you too. He came after and purchased you. Now, what makes this all the more profound is when we look and see the price that was paid. I mean, watch what happens here in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, not with the kind of money that would be used to liberate a slave, not with the kind of money that a little boy would pay a shopkeeper for a boat, not with earthly material things like silver or gold, but with something so much better, with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. That's the price that was paid for you. Blood blood was shed to buy you, Christian. Now, why is blood such a, a, a big deal? We can look back in the Old Testament here in Leviticus 17. 
where it says the life of the flesh is in the blood. This is in the context of animal sacrifices that were conducted in, in Israel. The life of the flesh, it's life, it's in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood of animals had power in the Old Testament. And what Peter is saying here is, there's a different kind of blood at work here. This is not the blood of, of, of an ox or a goat or a bull. This is a very special kind of blood. And this answers a question that some of us might have about this. If you're kind of a curious person, a thinking person, maybe you've asked this. Maybe you've thought, wait a minute. How can the shed blood of one man pay for the sins of so many people? Maybe you ever thought that? How can just one man who suffered a temporary amount of time, a fairly brief amount of time, actually. I mean, Jesus was on the cross at just a few hours, I think. And the penalty that people have to pay who aren't in relationship with Jesus is eternal punishment. And you're telling me that just this temporary suffering by one man is going to pay for all of those sins? How can that be? The answer is right here. It's right here in what Peter is saying. This blood shed by Jesus is, is not the blood of an animal. It's not the blood of an ox. He, Peter like, tries to give us some idea at the end of verse 19. He says it's, it's like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's kind of like a, a, a spotless, perfect, unblemished lamb. But it's something so much better than that. That we're talking about the blood of the Son of God. We're talking about blood shed by the Prince of Peace. We're talking about blood shed by the eternal Word made flesh. Blood shed by the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. This is no standard human blood. This is a precious blood. It's a blood of infinite value and entirely sufficient to pay for a lot of sin. Here's how some theologians have described it. This is a guy named Francis Turretin. Um, he says this, The dignity of an infinite person swallows up all the infinities of punishment due to us. Thus, Christ's suffering, though it lasted only a finite, brief time, was infinite in value because he is infinitely worthy. That's why the blood of Jesus can pay for so many sins. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish preacher, said something similar. <clears throat> In Christ's bloodshedding, there is an infinite overpayment for all my sins. Although Christ did not suffer more than infinite justice demanded, yet he could not suffer at all without laying down an infinite ransom. Have you ever overpaid a bill? You didn't know it, and then you got, you, you got the bill, and you thought it was going to be a bill, and you open it up, and you have a credit isn't that great? That's kind of what Jesus' blood is like. It's an overpayment, actually, for your sins. No matter how severe your sins have been, no matter how many times you've committed them, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover them. Just by way of bringing this home, just look upon your life and your past, look at all your sins, all the things that cause you grief and shame and guilt. 
Multiply it by 10,000. And there's still enough in the blood of Jesus to cover every one of them with more leftover. That, that's what Peter is saying here. That, that, that this is the price that was paid. You were bought with a price, a costly price, a price of infinite value. But we can't just stop there. We have to go on and see what else Peter has to say. You were bought with a price, but you were also bought for a purpose. And if I just stopped here, it might be very easy to leave and say, hey, this is great. All my sins paid for, I'm going to go out and live however I want. Eat, drink, and be merry. Party down. Man, this is great. Total free salvation, and now I can do whatever I want. But you were also bought for a purpose. God has something in mind when he redeemed you. What is this purpose? Well, <clears throat> the purpose is not just to get you into heaven. It's not just so you can do some religious activity for a few hours on Sunday morning. The purpose for which you were bought is so that you would live an entirely new and different and distinct kind of life. So that your whole life would be changed. So look what he says in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from what? From the futile ways inherited from your fathers. From the useless ways. The ways you used to live that were inherited from your forefathers, those who came before you, all the influences and teachers in your life before that, when you were an unbeliever, all these, um, these uh, ways of living that were contrary to God's will. You've been ransomed from that. Remember what I said about the ransom to the temple. You're delivered from the slave owner, but now you, are, you belong to a new owner. You've been ransomed from a former way of life, but now you have a new master. You're under new management. And the call from that God is to leave behind the way you once lived. He says this also in um, verse um, 14 as well. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The way you used to live. Now, what, what would that what would that be? If you look in the letters of Paul, Paul will have a list of all kinds of activities that characterize the life of the unbeliever. Before a Christian, I'm just going to select a few of them here. Here's um, some examples of futile ways of living. Sexual immorality, obscene talk from your mouths, slandering others' reputation, sorcery, witchcraft, the occult, practicing the occult, drunkenness and kind of intoxication, dissensions, divisions, looking to set people against each other, creating factions, lying, deceiving one another. What Peter is saying, what Paul is saying, is that these are the futile ways in which you used to live. You used to do these things regularly. You used to live for yourself and nobody else. You used to think, if it feels good, do it. That's the way you used to live, but not anymore, because you've been ransomed and bought for a new purpose. You've got a new life. You've been purchased by a Redeemer, and friends, that Redeemer has a right to his purchase. The Redeemer has a right to your life. He has a right 
to your time. He has a right to your money. He has a right to your house. He has a right to your reputation. He has a right to your career. He has a right to your children. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. Very clear <clears throat> description of this. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so often I just hear people say, you know, hey, I've, I have a right to be happy. I have a right to do whatever I want to make myself happy. If you're a Christian and your pursuit of happiness does not lead to holiness, no, you don't. It's not like your life is your own to just do with it whatever you want. You belong to somebody else now. You've been redeemed and bought with a price, and that Redeemer has a right to his purchase. I just want to flesh this out a little bit. Think of the implications of this. I mean, think of it this way. Let's say it was possible for you to buy your own salvation, to earn your own salvation. Let's say it was possible for you to work for it and to be a good person and to be a holy person and to really sacrifice and make payment for your salvation. Isn't it true, if that were the case, that you could merit salvation through your own efforts and through your own payment? Doesn't it stand to reason, then, that that would limit what God could ask of you. There would be a limit to what He could expect of you because He couldn't ask for any more than what you paid for. Isn't that right? I mean, for example, let's say uh, someone enrolls in seminary and they pay the tuition and they're thinking they're going to go to seminary and they're going to study books and they're going to study the languages, they're going to learn how to preach, they're going to study church history. That's what they're thinking they're going to do. They've paid their tuition. And when they get to seminary, he gets enrolled in like a boot camp. And he has to like do rock climbing. He has to do a ropes course. And he has to swim miles across a lake. What, what would that person say? Wouldn't that person say, "This I'm not going to do this anymore. This is not what I paid for. I didn't pay for this. So I don't have to do it. But what if somebody else paid for your salvation? What if you were bought with a price, a costly price? What if Jesus put forward all the payment necessary to save you? Doesn't it then follow that he can ask of you anything? Anything. You didn't pay for your salvation. You don't, you don't have the right to decide what God can require of you. God has purchased you, and now he can ask anything of you. Now, that can happen in different ways for different people. I know that kind of sounds like an alarming statement. Probably you're thinking, oh, my, you know, God's going to make me go to Africa. <laughs> you know... God's good. He loves us. You know, he's not looking for an opportunity to make your life hard. But it doesn't mean he's not going to ask hard things from you. Because he has the right to do that. He'll ask different things from different people. Some he'll ask to be a missionary. Some he'll ask to be a pastor. Some he'll ask to be an accountant. Some he'll ask to be single. Some he'll ask to be rich. Some he'll ask to be poor. Some he will ask to be a mom or a dad. 
I mean, it's not always something that's so unusual. So God can ask different things of different people because he has a right to his purchase. But here's one thing, one thing that's for sure in this passage is that what he requires of every child of God, of every person who calls on the Father as his father or her father, he is requiring holiness, the pursuit of holiness. You see that in verse 15. He says it again in a little bit of a different way at the end of verse 15. You also be holy in all your conduct, all your conduct. You see that word all? All your conduct. Not, not, not just for a couple hours when you come here at church where we all get our game face on and we all make sure everybody knows that we've got it together and our lives are good. We're all performing at peak levels right now, Sunday morning. It's not so hard to be holy for a few hours on a Sunday morning. Be holy in all your conduct. That means tonight, when you're with your family and your wife or husband's irritating you. That means when you're sitting before the computer and everybody else has gone to bed and it's just you and Safari to go wherever you want. It means holiness on the soccer field and the baseball diamond and in the workplace and in your neighborhood. Be holy in all your conduct. So what, that, what might that look like <clears throat> for some of you today? Maybe, maybe for you, you need to commit yourself. You need to think like this. I'm a Christian. I've been bought with a price. I've been bought for a purpose. God's called me to be holy, so here's what I'm going to do. I am going to do everything I can to reconcile that broken relationship, that person that I will not talk to, that person when he or she comes, I go to the other side of the street. Maybe it means, you know what, I'm going to stop stockpiling and hoarding all my money. I'm going to give 10% of my money to my church because that's a holy use of money, and I'm going to do that. Or maybe you're a single person. You can say to yourself, in a desire to be holy in all my conduct, I am going to refuse to have sexual relations with anybody until I'm married. I'm going to remain sexually pure. But you want to talk about being distinct and different and separate in this culture. That's a good way to do it. Or maybe you say, I am going to set aside my Sunday mornings. I'm going to clear my calendar and make sure that it is a priority for me to be there for Sunday school and worship, that I can be with God's people and be taught His Word. That's a holy use of time. Maybe it's just a commitment. Look, I'm just going to pray and ask God. God, show me the unholiness of my heart. Show me what areas of my life am I holding back for myself as if they belong to me, as if this area belongs to me and not to you. What are those areas of my life? What do I need to admit and realize belong to you, Jesus? If we do this, friends, if we live this way as a church, as individuals, you know, the result, I think, as Lloyd-Jones said, I do think the world's going to be attracted to that in some way, but in a lot of other ways, you're going to experience rejection. People aren't going to understand why you do what you do. You're going to feel alienated. You're going to feel out of step. You're going to feel like an exile. 
that's exactly what, what Peter says at the end of verse 17, the time of your exile. Remember he mentioned exile in verse 1. Peter's writing to people who feel like exiles. And that's the way Christians feel often. That's the way you will feel if you pursue holiness. You'll experience rejection. And the way to deal with that is just to remember the way this passage closes here. Verse 21, through him you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, in God's love, in God's approval, in God's word, not in the approval of the world. So let me close with this, just as a way of kind of dealing with that, a kind of idea of rejection, living a holy life in a world where we might be alienated. Um, there's a preacher named Campbell Morgan, a British preacher, uh, late 1800s. <clears throat> he applied for the ministry um, finish a bunch of exams. Last thing he had to do was preach a sermon, so he preached a sermon before some people who were evaluating his preaching to see if he would qualify for the ministry. Preached this sermon, had to wait a couple of weeks, went back into the building where he preached, and on the wall they had hanging names of those who were approved and those who were not. And Campbell Morgan noticed that he was not approved for the ministry. So he went home, and he sent a telegraph to his father, and it was just one word, rejected. And his father wrote back, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven, dad. Friends, you were bought with a price. That's why you can know that you're accepted in heaven. You've been bought with a price, so therefore, while on earth, be holy in all your conduct. God, this is a, a, a hard passage because you're calling us to do something, Lord, that we know is beyond our ability. We're not holy people. We acknowledge it, but we thank you that we're accepted because you bought us and purchased us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Fill us and enable us, Lord, to pursue holiness in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.